Friends, if you would turn in your copy of God's Word to Judges chapter 21. Judges chapter 21, and this is the last chapter. We are finishing up Judges. We slogged through it, and we're here. And it doesn't get any brighter, sorry. <laughs> Although, there is a good, beautiful gospel story throughout Judges 21 that I think that we'll be able to see if we have the eyes to see it. Uh, if you're taking notes, uh, the actual the, the title for today's sermon uh, is 600, Devastating Grace. 600, Devastating Grace. So, this is hearkening back to Gideon's 300 uh, men that the Lord chose in Judges chapter 7. The Lord works with various numbers throughout and various people and he was showing how he was going to be faithful to Israel even though they were faithless like Gideon was cowardly and faithless oftentimes and the Lord said choose for yourself 300 men who will fight the battle and the Lord said I will fight the battle on your behalf and now we see in juxtaposition to 300 where the Lord was fighting for Israel 600 innocent people who are sacrificed because of man's love for power. And uh, I think it is devastating when you are left to man's devices and yet the Lord, through those horrible circumstances, extends grace to people who are undeserving of that grace. We have What we have to understand as we close the book of Judges, as we close this journey is that the Lord's intentions are always good towards His people. They may not always feel good, but the Lord's intentions towards you, Christian, are always good. In particular in this chapter, we're going to see it because at the end of chapter 20, we heard these harrowing words. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. The city, men, and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found were set on fire. They decimated their own people. And you're wondering, what's the rest of the story going to be like with this utter devastation? Because this is not just men. This is not just battle time. We're getting pictures of this, right, as... as uh, uh, men, women, and children, civilians, are, are slaughtered because of the unrighteousness of a few. Because of Israel's doubling down on their anger, as Chad shared with us last week, that I'm so grateful for, that he shared with us from Judges 20, that oftentimes in our anger, we instead of confessing and repenting and asking for forgiveness, we double down and we make excuses and we say, I was right, you were wrong, and we make people the enemy. And because in back of that anger, and this is what I think we're going to see in chapter 21, in back of that anger is a more pervasive problem. What is the, the seed from which this anger stems? It's a problem that promotes any number of its manifestations. And that problem is our pride, our ego. When our ego gets in the way, when we think that everybody else out here needs to listen to what the sermon's about instead of me being the primary listener, 
then we begin to make others our enemy. The need to be right and for others to be wrong until they see our way of seeing things. The need to control our world instead of receiving it as a gift from God. Wringing our hands and getting frustrated when people don't do what we want them to do. And that's what we're going to see here in chapter 21. What is in stark contrast throughout this book of Judges and particularly in this chapter, <coughs> it's gotten even more stark, this contrast. It's gotten in very... You ever adjusted the contrast on your camera? Where as you slide it over, it gets the blacks get darker and the whites get whiter, and then you see these contrasts. That's what's happening throughout the book of Judges. And then here in chapter 21, it becomes very stark indeed. Because while the Lord's intentions for us are good, it's when we are left to ourselves that things go awry. This utter devastation has taken place because we've heard the refrain throughout the first half of Judges. And just to recap here, the the, the book of Judges can largely be divided into two sections, right? The the first section is all of these 12 Judges. They've got six major Judges, six minor Judges. And then you see in the latter half of Judges how all of this starts to unravel as all of Israel... Is, is guilty of what we saw just in the few judges. And in the first half, you hear Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And you heard it six times. You heard it in chapter 2, verse 11, chapter 3, verse 7, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 6, and chapter 13, verse 1. Time after time after time, we are reminded that Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. What, what Israel thought was good, the Lord saw as evil. And it's just by way of explanation that Israel did what they thought was right in their own eyes. And that's what characterizes the second half of the book. right? This refrain that says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. You see this contrast between what the Lord saw was evil, man called good. And you hear it in verse uh, 17, 6. 18.1, 19.1, and then at the end of the book, verse 25. To set up this contrast even more, you can hear the author of Proverbs 14.12 say, There is a way that appears just to people. There's a way that appears right in our own eyes, but its way leads to death. And that's what we're going to see here. And this is the pain and the juxtaposition that we ought to feel in this last chapter. There is a way that that seems right to you and there's a way that seems right to me. And if we don't have an overarching objective truth, namely God's standard, then might makes right. If I can beat you up, then I'm right and you're wrong. And that's what we see here. Is that the more powerful ones take advantage of the least powerful ones when it comes to what they do right in their own eyes. Unless the Lord guides us, Christian, unless the Lord guides us on the narrow path that leads to life, then it's natural for us to choose death. It's natural for us to choose our own way and to claim that everybody else out there has got it wrong. It's natural for us to be defensive or to be judgmental of other people. 
or to be fearful of other people or to be quiet when you should speak or to speak when you should be quiet. We live in a culture where winning is more important than understanding. Where memes and catchphrases are more important than logic and reasoning. What had been merely a threat of civil war back in chapter 11, remember, if you remember back that far in chapter 11, there was a threat of civil war, but that was assuaged by Gideon saying, hey, y'all, let's just settle down. Let's just settle down. That's not the way it happened. And then Jephthah says the same thing. Hey, let's, just, let's just settle down. It's become a reality here. When God gives people over to their own way of living and their own way of doing things. And as we heard last week, when God's people fight, everyone loses. And this is made even more prominent in today's passage. If you would, let's read the first few verses, uh, verses 1 through 7 together. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mitzpah, No one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. The irony here is thick, right? The reason why it's happening that way is because they chose to go decimate Benjamin. We'll go on. Verse 4. And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mitzvah, saying, uh, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? Did you notice anything missing in this passage? In these first few verses, did you notice anything? That Israel cries out to the Lord, verse 3, right? And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened to us? They built an altar. They even sacrificed on that altar. And what is lacking here is any word from God. God not intervening at all. It is an utter giving over of God's people to their ways, to the ways that they have chosen. And he is quiet. There is no response from God because he had said, if you want to go your way and you're going to continue to go on your way, I'll let you. And that could be the most devastating thing in our lives. If we continue to choose sin over God's ways, there may be a time where he just says, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. He has left them to their own devices. And we presume upon God's kindness when we think that, oh, I'm still struggling with sin, but you're making no provisions for how you're actually going to combat that sin. And the Lord, in His grace, may for a time pull back any kind of conviction in your heart, in your life, and leave you to yourself so that you can see that the end of your way is death. Because in reality... What we've seen over the last 20 chapters of the book of Judges is that they, Israel, had shut themselves off from hearing from God. 
That's why I oftentimes say that the most important part in this preaching moment, yes, it's important that I prepare, it's important that we're walking through a passage together, but actually the most important part is you, the hearer. Whether you are going to listen and receive what God has to say, you all have the more important part in this. He who has ears, let him hear. Because there were people, even in Jesus' day, God incarnate, who preached, and they didn't have the ears to hear. And so after time after time after time, they shut themselves off from listening to God because they really want to do what they want to do. And they don't want anybody coming in and raining on their parade. You see, they have the auspices of a religious life. They look religious on the outside. See, they, they sacrifice, they build an altar, they cry out to God. They, they even take oaths. But these oaths were not tempered and guided and directed by God's Word. You see that in verses uh, 5, the second half of 5. Um, For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to Mitzpah. And then the second half of 7. Since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives. They had made oaths, but they weren't tempered and directed by what actually should have been an oath. Their religious zeal was merely a cloak for their unbridled revenge on Benjamin. And we oftentimes can do that. We oftentimes can have the guise of religion while we hate our brother in our heart. They had a misguided devotion like we often, often do, and we can see that in the next paragraph. In fact, let's read that together. This next paragraph, verses 8 through 12. And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that didn't come up to the Lord at Mitzpah? This, this oath that they made at Mitzpah, right? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh Gilead. They, none of those guys had come to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword. Also, the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male... And every woman that is lain with a male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. They were utterly committed to the vow that they had made at Mitzpah. So much so that they didn't learn their lesson from what they had just done to Benjamin. They had just almost entirely decimated an entire tribe. And they said, hey, you know what? Who, who didn't come up? Let's go ahead and wipe all of them out too. They had not learned anything. Which had brought them to the place of where they were destitute and decimated as a people. And just like Jephthah, you remember back in the story of Jephthah that he had made a rash vow and there was a, there's actually provision for when you make a vow to the Lord in Leviticus 5, verses 4 through 6. You can write that down and go visit it later. But there's a provision. If you make a rash vow to the Lord and you're like, if I do this vow, then I'm going to sin against the Lord, the Lord provides a way out. Jephthah could have 
Jephthah could have waved that card. He could have made a sacrifice and said, hey, you know what, I, my bad. But he didn't. He not only doubled down in this chapter, he tripled down. That's what Israel did. Instead of saying, you know what, we made a bad oath at Mitzvah. We, you know, Lord, hey, my bad. Can we sacrifice and make amends? They could have done that because that was God, what God's word had given them a provision to be able to do that. But Israel was so committed that they did not want to repent. They didn't want to admit that they were wrong. They didn't want to admit their sin. My question for us is, what if there are things in the church that we are so utterly committed to that aren't really informed by Scripture? Maybe there are certain things in your own devotion, in your own life, that you are utterly committed to, but it's not really informed by God's Word. Perhaps our certainty and devotion is misguided so that we despise brothers and sisters in Christ who understand God's sovereignty different than we do, who understand God or man's responsibility different than we do, who have made different parenting decisions than we have. Or maybe there's a particular ministry that you are really passionate about that others seem to be hmm, lukewarm about. And so we get defensive and we get frustrated because not everybody's all up in a fury over something. And you're like, do they even love God? <laughs> What's wrong with them? They're not talking about these things as, as fiery as I am. Maybe they don't really love God. As, uh, as uh, Dan Allender has said, he's just said in a podcast this past week I was listening to, he says, we get defensive, or when we get defensive in our relationships with one to another and with one to a group, if I get defensive, that's a telltale sign that we are operating from a religious dogmatism. When we're shaking our fists, when we are clenching our fists, when we are not letting go instead of opening up our hands and saying, maybe I've got something to learn from someone that disagrees on that topic. That's not, again, informed by Scripture. When this happens, we can often couch that frustration and that disappointment in the language of religion. We can say, I don't think they're Christian because they don't care about you fill in the blank. Or that church over there has compromised the gospel because they've actually believed something that's different than you. And it may not be anything of foundational orthodox faith. As a result, you write off an entire lot of people and blot them out of your life. We often have a misguided devotion. I know that I do. We oftentimes have a misguided devotion. And rather than being marked by love, we often can become jerks by claiming that we are simply speaking the truth. But my question then becomes, what about weak, meekness and weakness? What about gentleness? What about kindness? What about goodness? What about self-control? What about all of the fruit of the Spirit? Not just truth all the time. Because we make these compromises in our disposition towards others, 
We can treat brothers and sisters the way that we are supposed to be treating sin and Satan. We oftentimes make our brothers and sisters in Christ, when they disagree with us, when they have compromised, worse in our eyes than the sin in our own hearts that judges and condemns, that hates in our hearts, that talks about people behind their back and says, no, I'm just trying to help. With the person not in the room, ironically. Notice that Israel was supposed to, as a judgment from God on the wickedness of the Canaanites, that they were supposed to, in verse 11, the latter half of verse 11, devote to destruction the Canaanites because of the Canaanites' wickedness. Don't, don't, don't get the narrative wrong that the Canaanites were not just an innocent people on, on an island by themselves that were untainted by sin. No, they were a wicked people and the Lord said, devote to destruction all of these things as my judgment will come upon them. Instead, they do it to their own people. They almost wipe out Benjamin and they don't learn their lesson, do they? They utterly destroy people. Let's read again just to let it sink into our hearts. Um, verse 10. Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword. This is not God speaking. This is Israel. Go strike them with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones, the babies. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that is lame with a male, you shall devote to destruction. They compounded their sin by committing more sin. Have you ever tried hiding your sin? Have you ever tried hiding your sin by lying? Say, no, 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 I, I, I didn't really mean that. <laughs> oh, you, you took it the wrong way. Did they? <laughs> we oftentimes change the narrative of the past because we are so entrenched in being right and everybody else being wrong that we care more about that than we care about grace and, and love and steadfastness. We oftentimes can justify the ends with the means that we use. And the Lord is just as concerned with the means that we use to accomplish the ends. Just like we see here that Israel finds loopholes, don't they, to their wicked ways. They're like a lawyer trying to find a, a way out. Some kind of caveat. You didn't say that particularly... Therefore, we can do this horrible, horrendous thing by slaughtering innocent babies and women. In fact, Jesus spoke about these very things, didn't He? In Mark chapter 7, He said to the Pharisees that you all use God's Word. You say that this thing is devoted to, or Korban, this thing is devoted to the Lord so that you don't actually have to take care of your parents. We oftentimes can do that too if we're not careful. We can use the religious garb of like, God told me to do this. And we plow over anyone who gets in our way. Saying, you, you must not really be listening to the Lord. <laughs> How is your quiet time? Because obviously I'm hearing from God, but because you're disagreeing with me. 
Oftentimes we use our, use our oaths, use religious language as a cloak for our own ego and our own pride and our own desire for the things that aren't righteous. So, Israel takes part in the slaughter of innocent lives. They kidnap these 400 women. And by the way, kidnapping is punishable by death in the Mosaic Law. And we continue. Let's look at verses 13 to 15. After they stole these 400 young virgins, then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the Rock of Rimmon and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the, the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead. But they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. There's a flicker of hope in this paragraph, and I want you to be able to see it. Where we see this word, compassion. Compassion. They had compassion because the Lord had allowed the breach to happen. As we saw last week that the Lord brought judgment by decimating a tithe or a tenth of the percentage of the people. 40,000 Israelites were slaughtered. 40,000 of the 400,000 were slaughtered as a judgment on Israel. And then Benjamin was slaughtered. There had been a breach, a huge chasm that had developed because of this pride and egotism. But did you notice this? Did you notice this? The primary cause of the breach was Israel's anger. That's what caused this. But the interpretation here is it was the Lord who allowed it to happen. Notice it again. The people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Get this clear that people are responsible and guilty of their own sin and yet the Lord has divine purposes and reasons for it that you may not see. And you don't need to divine what is the Lord teaching me in this horrible moment. No, you grieve the horrible thing that has happened to you. Have there been people in your life who have disappointed you? Have there been people in your life who have hurt you and sinned against you? Have there been institutions who have not done right? Yes, the answer is yes to all of these things. And hear me loud and clear that when people hurt you, when people sin against you, when people malign you and do all kinds of evil against you, they are guilty of their crimes. Period. Yet, yet, these moments are a call for us to press into God Himself. To find that when the ground gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. He is the rock upon which you can build your life. Because people will fail you. And if they haven't, they will. People will hurt you. And if they haven't, they will. And that is not a Debbie Downer type thing. It's just 
the reality of the fall and the reality of sin in our own hearts. And the reality of it, too, is, is that you have disappointed people. You, too, unwittingly and wittingly, have hurt people. And these moments of being hurt and reckoning with that hurt in our lives are moments for us to press into the Lord and say, Lord, I need you. I need you to come into my heart and my life. And even as Job himself declared, though he, speaking of God, though he slay me, what will he do? Yet I will trust in him. I don't know why he's slain me. I don't know why this unrighteous, wicked person is prevailing over me. I don't know why this is happening to me. But God, I will trust in you. We have to learn to see behind the events in our lives. Not justifying the event, but seeing behind the events as the Lord allowing, the Lord doing a work in our own hearts if we let Him, That, as C.S. Lewis said, that pain might be God's megaphone to you. That He loves you. That He can be enough for you. And we see Israel... Oblivious to its own sin, continuing to entrench itself in its religious-sounding oath in the next verses. Look at verses 16 through 24. Then, you think they get it right, right? They, they're seeing all this destruction, like, oh man, this is horrible. No, they, can you quadruple down on something? They're quadrupling down. So we're, they're going to do that here in this next paragraph. Then the elders of the congre- congregation said, what shall we do for wives for those who are left? There's 200 left, right? since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin. And they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn, cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Labona. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would have now been guilty." And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. If you continue to read in the canon of Scripture, uh, these, these folks here, are going to be very important uh, to the life, to J- the people of Jabesh Gilead, uh, to um, uh, Saul in 1 Samuel 11. You can see that. And so there's a special relationship that they build. I can't get into all those pieces there. But what happens here is they go and they slaughter in Jabesh Gilead, and there's 400 ladies left. And they take them, they kidnap them, so that the Benjaminites can have wives. And then what do they do? They say, well, there's 200 more we need to do. Well, let's go snatch them while they're dancing in the middle of a festival. This is nothing less than taking advantage of innocent people, plain and simple. 
This is probably the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was a time to rejoice and remember when God had been faithful to his people in the wilderness and had saved them from all of their enemies. This is supposed to be a time of rejoicing. And we see in this last scene a confluence of all of the wicked judges before, don't we? We see Ehud's deception. We see Gideon's cowardice and lust for power. We see Jephthah's rash vow and cold sacrifice of his daughter. And we see Samson's anger at a wedding feast. The irony is thick indeed. The very thing that started this whole debacle back in chapter 19, do you remember what it was? It was the Levite and his concubine. And what is Israel doing? They're doing the exact same thing. By taking advantage of the innocent, by raping women, and clothing it in righteous language called marriage. This is not marriage. This is kidnapping, plain and simple, and it's wrong. And the book of Judges ends with these harrowing words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Praise God that we are going to be looking at the book of Ruth that talks about this coming king, namely King David, uh, for the next four weeks. You've got to read Judges and Ruth together. and We're going to do that uh, in the next four weeks. But the story of Judges could be our story and we need to feel this and we need to let the humility sprout up in our own hearts that this could be you and me and oftentimes it is we may not pull a knife on anyone and stab them and kill them but the Lord himself said if you if you are angry with anyone you are murdering them in your heart we need to see this story these 21 chapter chapters of judges of how evil God's people can be. This is not about all those who don't know God out there. This is about God's people acting evil and doing whatever they see fit to do. We can delve into war in churches, can't we? We can argue over the color of the carpet, the style of the music, the style of the preaching, the color of the walls. And we can also argue about theological things that aren't as important as we think they are. When we delve into cutting one another down, when we distance ourselves from that person who just, they kind of get on my nerves. Slowly, a breach forms where we kill our brother and our sister with our thoughts, our words, and our action and inaction. Have you ever noticed what is sorely lacking in this chapter? of a book called Judges. <clears throat> Have you noticed? <clears throat> Justice. Justice is nowhere in sight in this particular chapter and throughout the book of Judges. There's power. There is ruling over other people. There is conniving. See, justice is relational in its nature. Giving what another is due him as a creature of God. As an image bearer of the Creator. On the surface, Israel looks like it's seeking justice for the Benjaminites, doesn't it? Oh yeah, yeah we made this vow and you know, we, 
it, it shouldn't be that anybody should be wiped out. This is all this garb of religious language, but it's at the cost of innocent lives. What about the innocent people who suffer because of that quote-unquote justice? True justice cannot be justified by its end, but by its means as well. I know that someone in this book, just one, would have stood up and said, this ought not to be among the people of God. They probably would have been killed. The reason justice is lacking in this entire book is because Israel had forgotten its judge, its righteous judge standing over all. And you and I need a reminder this morning that all of us will give an account to God the righteous judge of all the earth for every harsh word that we say. For every action done and left undone. We will each give an account to the judge of all the earth who will surely do right. The remedy to our everyday actions is to see each person you encounter as an image bearer of the Almighty God. Do you recall Jesus' harrowing image on the day of judgment? What you did to the least of these, you did to me. And where we heard in Exodus 22 just a moment ago, and then in Matthew 22, right? you leave it to the poor, you are doing this to me. The Lord is the judge of the weakest in our midst. And then the Lord says, this is your neighbor. And we oftentimes forget that. We oftentimes forget that what we have done to the least of these in our midst, we have done to the Lord Himself. And we see in the Almighty Judge, Jesus, both perfect righteousness, perfect justice, and perfect mercy. Look at His hands. Look at His feet. Look at His gaping hole in the side that says I did this for you and at the same time you can say I did that to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and yet the Lord says look at my side and look at my hands and as you say I, I did that and the Lord says yes I did this for you because I love you and this is what true justice this is what true mercy looks like in the righteous judge of all the earth so May we celebrate and relish that fact that the God of all the earth, the one who has all the power, looks at you and comes to you and says, I love you and I forgive you. Will you not also forgive the least of these? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of life that you have given us. We thank you for the privilege and responsibility that we have to be called children of God. We thank you that we have seen mercy and justice kiss at the cross. That indeed in Jesus we find our hope and our longings. That we don't have to fight with one another anymore. We don't have to make the other person our enemy anymore. And may you, Holy Spirit, make our anger towards one another an anger towards unrighteousness and sin in our own hearts and in the world around us. We ask it in Jesus' name.
Amen.